Welcome to the Men Matter Focus on Friends, the Director's Cut. On the Man Up Spiritual Oasis for Men podcast, we give a fast five questions to organizations and resources that are particularly helpful to the spiritual man. Here, we go a little deeper with our guests and for you, the listener, more information and a better understanding of their mission. And now for the Focus on Friend Director's Cut. And welcome, everybody. This is the Men's Matters segment. This is actually the Director's Cut. Uh, we had Mr. John Cates uh, in the Men's Matter Fast Five, and that was in our podcast. And now what we're doing, we're, we're doing a little longer segment with, with John. We, we got him to go ahead and extend into the next segment. And the whole idea behind the men men matter is that we recognize that the deaths by the despair and suicide by neglect are real. And the big reasons for the age of mortality being five years less for men and women. And closing that gap is a tangible mission for man up. So we've, uh, we've expanded our outreach uh, with new man up media. And what we plan to do is, uh, highlight uh, different resources and ministries that, that fit that kind of profile that can help men. And one of the great reasons why we chose uh, John to be the very first one is because Man Up actually sprung from a Sunday school class called Tool Time that John started. So He's an absolute uh, giant in the addiction and recovery field, and he's dedicated his life to helping others. Uh, let's please welcome uh, John Cates. Oh, man. I, I didn't know you were going to talk about that. It's a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I consider that the absolute root, and I remember uh, being in that class, uh, gosh, it's probably been close to 10 years ago now, and... <clears throat> the difference that it made in the lives of men. And, uh, and that's what uh, really propelled myself. And I, I believe it was Michael Cropper, who's also on the board of uh, Man Up Media, uh, to continue on uh, and start uh, Man Up. Well, I tell you what, any credit I get pales in comparison to what you've done, Bill. I mean, I just, this is just, you and I got together, we got goofy, ate breakfast <laughs> with all those other guys, <laughs> talked right. about, tried to figure out what the Bible was trying to say to us and, you know, make it, make it relevant. And it was a blast. Mr. John Cates, question number one, I would just like to uh, have you tell, tell the audience the name of your ministry. The name that it's best known by is Lifeway. Uh, it is also known by Association of Alternative Peer Groups and the APGs, Alternative Peer Group. On a national level, you will find APGs. There are about 40 of them that are members of the association right now. And then there's some others that aren't members. That, and it stands for Alternative Peer Group Program. That's Excellent. Name, and just, uh, just give the audience a, a little uh, snippet on the mission of the ministry. Well... It is actually anchored in about 50 years of knowledge obtained about recovery from substance use disorder. I want to hit that word hard, substance use disorder. Notice I didn't say alcoholism and I didn't say addiction and I didn't say uh, 
substance abuse. What we found out after 20 years of walking around saying we think it's a disease, it looks like a disease, we found out with the help of MRIs and CAT scans that in fact it is a disease and it's caused by exposing the brain to these substances, period. Uh, from the Christian standpoint, we have about, um, oh, I don't know, about 70 times in the Bible it says don't get drunk. It doesn't say don't drink. It does say don't get high, you know, don't get drunk. And that's the point where we know that you have damaged, you know, done some damage and abused the brain with these substances. So going back to the question, though, 50 years ago, there was an organization here called Palmer Drug Abuse Program that was there when I needed to get well. And they started discovering ways to deal with this uh, that matched up with science that came along uh, 25 years later. And uh, LifeWay, which began in 1985, took advantage of all of that. And I opened it, and I had the opportunity to open the first recovery high school along the way also. Mostly dealt with adolescents, but also did adults and uh, older adults. And today, LifeWay is centering on over 25-year-olds, uh, but it centers around embracing the disease as it is, not as we wish it was, not as a lot of propaganda and folks trying to make a buck want to tell you it is, but really what it is. Embracing that and, and the elements that we know bring success. Can you give a little bit of the backstory about the business of recovery and maybe how how it's changed over the years um, and maybe a little bit insight into the science of it. I would love to. Actually, it's one of my favorite things. Um, when I got, when I, when I, you know, there's so much misunderstanding about recovery from this disease and it continues. Uh, frankly, this disease is anchored in an activity that we as human beings love so much that it creates massive amounts of money available. And, and it is very, very difficult for the truth uh, to, to set us free, so to speak. And we actually know the truth about the disease and we've known it for over 20 years. When I got sober, however, we suspected the truth. We didn't know it and it's not the same. And we all believed that once the truth was made known, that really we'd be able to go after this disease and cause great you know, strides in recovery. Unfortunately, that is not what has happened and, and it's a whole, you know, several programs worth of information and, and process. But <clears throat> when I began uh, in the recovery world myself, um, as I said, I got involved with an organization that was uh, of the opinion that this might be a disease. It looks like a disease. It acts like a disease. Uh, we're going to use the disease concept, you know, and all of those qualifiers. And coming from that point of view and the need, because I was young and, and the program was really, really catering to young people, this alternative peer group thing, what's now called alternative peer groups, it was, uh, it, it, it required that folks stayed in the program for a while, not knowing that research later would show that actually stabilization from substance use disorder is an 18 month to four year average process, not 30, 60, wow. 90 days, 18 months to four years. We know that the neurology element of it, the broken brain, the 
brain damage that develops from exposing the brain to these substances takes an average of 10 months before it starts to repair itself if you're abstaining, okay? Then you got problems with things called harm reduction, which is a necessity because people, you know, if you go out and you do too much heroin or too much Oxycontin or too much of this, too much, you, you die. And once you've died, there's no chance of recovery. So trying to address how do we keep people from dying, but at the same time help them recover because recovery requires treating the brain the way it needs to be treated and whose brains can never get well. So it's a huge, huge issue. Everybody wants to focus on the psychology. See, what happens is if you break the neurotransmitter regulation system in the brain, that's the part of the brain that's responsible for the emotions we as human beings experience. Guess what part of the brain these substances go after? The neurotransmitter regulation system. Why do we like to do them? Copping a buzz feels good. And you don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to go to work. You don't have to do your homework. You don't have to be honest. You don't have to hit your knees. You don't have to do anything. It's a free, good feeling. Just And it's instantaneous, you know? So we love that. Uh, coming from a Christian standpoint, I think that's one of the reasons that it's so heavily talked about in the Bible about, hey, man, don't get high. Don't get high because... The emotions that you have are what you use to guide the development of your character and your, uh, your, your psychology. I'll give you an example. Uh, I got up this morning. I, I kind of wasn't feeling very good. To be honest with you, I had a little bit of a headache and everything. I got up. Nevertheless, I, I, I went ahead and I didn't give in to that moment of, of not feeling so hot. I went ahead, did some exercise kind of stuff, working out in the yard, that kind of thing. Got myself all dressed up, cleaned up, ate myself a little breakfast, drink a little bit of coffee. And here I am. And as I tell you this, inside of me, created by my neurotransmitter regulation system, are emotions of some self-satisfaction and peace. And I, and, and I feel good feelings because I went ahead and met, met the behaviorally what I was supposed to meet. So the emotional payoff is good. So what's going to happen? Well, I've learned, oh, why did I do it in the first place? Well, I've learned over time that when I get myself up and get myself going, I get good feelings. So it has taught me to develop that element of my psychology. Now, let's change it up. Is that discipline? That's what we call it. Yeah. Yeah. We call it some discipline. Yeah. Some self-discipline and and it pays off doing your homework pays off. But let me tell you what I could have done. I could have gotten up and felt a little clunky because I'm 69 years old. I mean, I've got a right to feel a little clunky. So I could have gotten up and felt a little clunky and let me see, I'll just take my Oxycontin because I got some aches and pains. Well, in addition to the aches and pains going away, guess what else would have happened? I would have had some feelings of joy. Okay. And if I, and if I had taken another one, I'd had a lot of joy, but I wouldn't have been able to go on this, this radio program, but it wouldn't have made any difference because I would have been rewarding myself with good feelings that I really don't deserve. Nothing happened except I took the pill, you know? 
And I'm not saying that folks don't need medications. They do. And I'm not saying that pain is a bad thing. I'm saying that taking pain away comes at a cost. And that's at my age. Now let's go to adolescence where 90% of what we determine as alcoholism and addiction begins. 90% began as adolescence. Adolescence, the brain is even more sensitive and breaks easier. When I say break, I mean it quits working right even when you're not using. So you're having emotions you're not supposed to be having. Breaks even easier when you're an adolescent. <clears throat> so, and it, as an adolescent is where you're supposed to be developing, as you use the word, discipline. You're supposed to be developing work habits, work ethic, uh, relationship processes, an ability to build a long-term uh, relationship with another human being. You're building um, uh, your relationship with God, you know, is supposed to be going on during that time. And in fact, part of that relationship with God is where you're supposed to learn to deal with your feelings instead of pills. Yeah. So what you're saying is, and you use the term breaking the uh, breaking of the brain, um, but what you essentially it seems like the that high or that feeling they get from uh, from drugs or alcohol or whatever um, is a shortcut around discipline and that is a big reason that it's holding people back uh, uh, from recovery. Yeah, yeah, it changes the way you think. When I told a little bit about my early story, all right, I was raised in a great family. Uh, I became a Christian at eight years old, and it was as real as it could be. My religious elements in my life were uh, loving, grace-filled concepts of God. No, no, no. Um, uh, you know, bad experiences with the religion or anything. Um, there was no alcoholism or addiction in my family, extended it included. I was taught all the right stuff. And because of that, by the time I hit junior high, I had a work ethic. I did my schoolwork. I went to church. It was all real. I loved my family. They loved me. It was, a, you know, the, the leave it to beaver life. Mm-hmm. 12 years old, I'm at a friend's of my house. I play the guitar and sing a little bit. And so I was in a little rock and roll band, uh, junior high band. His mother and dad leave. He says, let's, he looks at me and, and the other guy says, parents have gone. Let's go get in the liquor cabinet. Now you would think being taught, which I was, I was taught, hey, don't drink. Because there was no marijuana around. This is Amarillo, Texas. This was, you know, that was 1962. Don't drink uh, until you're 21, and even then be really, really careful because we have seen it destroy people's lives. That's what I was taught by the most powerful and loving people in my life. So you would think at 12, I would have gone, no, I'm not going to do that. I mean, because I was had it in the right way. I had developed a lot of good stuff. I immediately said, yeah, okay, let's do that. And I acted like it wasn't my first time, which it was. Why? Why peer pressure, peer pressure, peer pressure. And all of that time, while all those people that I loved were telling me that I was also sitting in front of a box and going to a movie and every single solitary 
sexy, sophisticated, successful person that we were given as role models, Rock Hudson, uh, Marilyn Monroe, Gina Lollobrigida, you know, you name them. Every single one of those cool men had a drink in their hand. If it wasn't a martini, it was rum. If it wasn't rum, it was ale. If it wasn't ale, it was beer. Uh, red eye, you know, every single solitary one of them. So Back then, it was probably cigarettes, song. too. Same they thing. They had a cigarette, too. And we're still doing it with this. We're yeah. still doing it with alcohol and other drugs. We're yeah. still telling everybody this is, the way to, this is the way to be cool and successful and sexy. So... So I do that. I still leave it alone because my parents, my mother had the best nose this side of the Mississippi and there was nothing uh, shy about them at all. So when I got home, she could smell it and immediately address me about it. Uh, and I lied to her and found out that people who love you will, will make up reasons for you, you know, and she figured out why I smelled like alcohol because I'd been eating, um, uh, Polish sausages. <laughs> so, <laughs> nice. You know, I just Thank oh, you, I, mom. deny, deny, deny. But it did keep me from using hardly at all during high school. After high school, came to the University of Houston, smoked my first dope. Yeehaw. Loved that feeling. Man, I loved that feeling. And from the time, and I was 17, just barely 17 years old. I graduated a year early. Remember I said I did my schoolwork and stuff, graduated a year early from high school, came to the U of H. Smoked my first dope, and from 17 until 25, I got loaded every day, If I almost every day. There may have been a day or two somewhere in that eight years, but virtually I don't remember. Um, every day in the last four years, I'm shooting heroin. <clears throat> well, but because I didn't cause the break in the brain until I was 17 and in high school and already learned the work ethic stuff and all that, I kept the work ethic even though I had reached a point in the brain damage that was what we call substance use disorder. <clears throat> so even though I'm getting loaded and doing weird, crazy stuff at night, I'm still going to college. I started teaching school. Uh, I finished University of Houston in three years. I teach school for HISD while I'm working on my master's degree for educational administration while I'm shooting dope. Okay. Regularly, not just once every six months. And if I'm not shooting dope, I'm drinking and I'm smoking dope the whole time. And I am the epitome of what everybody holds up. All the marketing people and all the pro, you know, use people hold up as here's a guy who can do his drugs and his drugs not do him. Now, what they didn't know was in my private life with my first wife that I was doing all sorts of weird stuff. She was. We were lying to each other. We had split up. I had started to live with a guy who was just another suburb kid who was dealing heroin because on a teacher's salary, you can't afford very much heroin. So I'm living with him because as he does deals, I get to go along. And because I'm going along, I get a piece of it. Okay. But everybody's looking at me at that point in time because they don't know all of that. All they know is I'm in, I'm in, I'm teaching school. I'm keeping my class, you know, my grades up in my master's work, et cetera. So they think, here's a guy who can do his dope, and his dope doesn't do him. And then the FDA, we had a deal we were doing. It was 10 times more than we'd ever done before. It was a setup by what became the FDA, or the DEA, rather. And um, they uh, came and arrested us. 
And I found myself in Harris County Jail, not the new one, not the nice little little motel we have now. I'm talking about the old Harris County Jail, the one the guys from Cook County in Chicago said it was much worse. I saw a guy get beat to death in the back. There were 36 beds and 125 guys in there. Um, I was a skinny white boy at 145 pounds or 140 pounds at 6'1". Uh, terrified walking around in that place uh, and thought, Oh oh my God. So this is, this is, uh, this is where it goes. Now what had happened neurologically to me is that 17 is when I had used enough of the substances to cause the neurotransmitter regulation system in my brain to quit working correctly. I made it to 17. A lot of people don't make it until 13 or even 14 because the younger the brain is, the easier it is for it to quit working properly, even when you're not using. Okay. What we call substance use disorder is based in that basic fact that if you continue to attack that part of the brain with these substances, it causes the brain to, what happens when you get high? The brain excretes more dopamine, endorphins, et cetera. That those are the right, right. Those are the I've heard that. When they get excreted, the human being feels joy, peace, you know, fun, ain't this great? Okay. These substances cause that part of the brain to excrete massive amounts. The substances are received, the receptors are called dendrites. All right. And when the dendrites are full of this stuff, that's when the human being feels these joy, you know, those kind of things. The problem is if the dendrites aren't, don't have anything in them, you feel the other side of emotions, anxiety, frustration, depression, fear, etc. When you are flushing massive amounts over whatever number of dendrites have been produced by the brain, the brain goes, oh, there's more coming. I need to grow some more dendrites. So it grows more dendrites, okay? That means when there's nothing happening, there are more dendrites saying, you feel crappy, sending you feelings of anxiety and frustration and fear, all right? So what you have is you have the production of uh, bad feelings in addition to good feelings, neither one of them tied to reality. That's the jonesing for the highs. That's part of it. That's, it is the, actually, it's the affective side. Everybody thinks of jonesing as sweats, you know, fever, aches, and pains. That's nothing compared to, I just feel a little anxious and frustrated because I don't go, oh, I must have broken my neurotransmitter regulation system in my brain. Now I need to wait 10 months and abstain and let it heal itself. I don't do that. And keep in mind that every feeling of, of bad, every bad feeling I have between now and the time it gets well, I need to not pay attention to it because it's not grounded in reality. I start to look for reasons why I feel low and the reasons come up. My job's a drag. My wife is goofy. She doesn't understand me. Life sucks. You know, uh, when, when you're 15 years old, what's the, the probable culprit of a bad feeling? School parents. You got it. You got it. School, school sucks. It's stupid. They don't, you know, my parents don't understand. I've got that stupid Spanish test. I'm not going to be a Spaniard. I'm going to be a rock and roll star. And my parents don't get it. 
So you start building the, this aberrant psychology because you're getting faulty emotional feedback about your, you know, as you relate to the world. So you, it's Monday morning, you're having that test, you go on and go to school. Guess who's there to meet you? The guy you got loaded with, you know, yes, three days ago, THC's 72 hours bangs around on your brain. The guy you got loaded with seven days, 72 hours ago before you went on the long weekend with your parents, let's say. So he's there. He goes, yeah, I'm glad you're back, man. Let's go out to the parking lot and toke up. You go out to the parking lot, you crank up, or these days he just brings out his, his uh, vape and there's no aroma. Y'all just go to the bathroom in the high school, be vape up the THC that you bought at the local CBD store, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's just crazy what's going on or ordered online and it got, you know, got delivered to your house. Anyhow, you go into the, um, into the restroom, you, you vape up, you come out and you know what? You, you cut the Spanish class. Now, what are you telling your psychology that's developing? Because you're feeling good. You're telling your psychology, Hey, this works. And you know what? Spanish is stupid. I know I'm, I'm having an emotional reward from blowing it off. And this is how we progress and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And um, a 15 year old takes an average of about four months use to break that neurotransmitter system. 16, average of five months. We've known this by the way for 20 years, uh, but you don't hear that in the media or anything. Nobody's, you don't, you know, you have to look pretty deep into research to find these things. You're not gonna, you're not gonna put it on uh, NBC or ABC at night. Right. Now so that's how it develops. That's what you hear about. It's progressive. That's what we're talking about. That's how people go from, uh, you know, a great little kid to living under a bridge. Okay. Uh, now you focused a lot on the adolescence part. And one thing about uh, the man up ministry and the men matter uh, that we are focusing on is uh, death by despair. And the way we uh, define that is uh, despair. Someone uh, loses a job, ultimately loses a relationship, uh, then maybe falls into drug abuse and alcoholism and can't get out of that cycle of, of self-destruction. And the reason that uh, we came up with that uh, title or uh, because I've volunteered at Loaves and Fishes many times and I've talked with a lot of the homeless people there and some of them had great histories, great jobs, great families and something just happened and they fell into this cycle. Could you talk a little bit about what you've seen in adults and particularly yeah. adult men that this kind of thing has happened to. Well, the reason why I focused on adolescence is that's where you remember I said 90% of what we diagnose as alcoholism or drug addiction, substance use disorder begins in adolescence. In the stories you recited, if you really dig in and people are very slow to admit that, including the guys down under the bridge, you know, if you go in and you go, okay, well, do you get high? 
if they think <clears throat> that that's going to affect how you're going to respond to, to them, they're going to culture their answer accordingly. Right? What is more, very, very common in, with older guys is, okay, yeah, I've been poking along, drinking a little bit, have a few meds here and there, I had a surgery, you know, these things. It's, it's this use, and it's been, they've looked good. For example, I'll tell you, I always tell my story, and well, because I was using heroin, I was easy to arrest. Let's suppose that I had laid it down and become just a drinker. I would have gone on for decades succeeding in building a career until finally things started to blow up. I would have probably gotten on my second or third marriage, which we see all the time in adult males and adult females. We don't Absolutely. think about, you know, we don't think about that the substance use disorder has contributed to the progression of the psychology in a direction and it's causing these things. I might've been, I might've made it to a principal, but I'd have never made it beyond that. And I possibly could have done that had I not got sick. I might could have become a superintendent or something like that, but I might would have made it to a principal. Then, then though, however, I would have started to have trouble. And finally, you know, uh, the superintendent came and says, you know, you're, you're just not hacking it. You need to retire. Okay. What's going on is I've actually had substance use disorder this whole time, but nobody has seen it. The other, that's one of the scenarios. One of the problems, if I go and I look through all the people, loads of fishes are down under the, under the freeways and I interview, I'm going to find a lot of that scenario. What you're seeing is a culmination of the progression of the disease that began sometime earlier in their life. The second thing you will see is uh, yeah, a term that is functional addiction. That's, that's a good term. Yeah, functional. Uh, the second thing you'll see is that somebody will be going along and they'll have something that will happen. Okay, let's say they, don't, they haven't got the disease. But let's say they, oh, they're going along and they lose a job, like you said. You said lose a job. They get, lose a job, they get, get, get depressed, and they have a choice at that point in time. They can do the things to deal with depression that are not directly damaging to the neurology, or they can listen to the TV. And the TV says to them, if you've got a bad feeling, Go to your doctor and the doctor's going to give them a prescription and guess what that prescription is going to do. It's going to change the neurotransmitter system process. Okay. What they miss is learning the techniques to deal with that depression without the substance, which by the way, a lot of times is what equates to maturity, maturing. Maturity doesn't stop at 17. Maturity goes on and on and on. Uh, there's an old phrase, Eric Erickson says, show me, uh, show me an old person who has the dignity to face death, and then young people will have the courage to face life. <clears throat> that dignity is that we develop as we get older is a process of maturity towards those end days. These substances will delay and sidestep that maturity. Part of that maturity comes from, you said it in the beginning of talking about my morning this morning, a little bit achy, a little headache. 
that, you know, I'm 69 years old and I'm still learning discipline. You know, it's I'm maturing. I'm still maturing, headed towards that day when I get called home, hopefully someplace cool. <laughs> right. <clears throat> well, John, <clears throat> I mean, this has been an excellent discussion. What I kind of want to focus on uh, for our last few minutes that we have the opportunity to uh, talk with you, um, you've talked about the powerful lessons uh, and stuff. How about some techniques that people that if they are in the throes of addiction or or are just starting uh to realize that uh in, in maybe a maybe a loved one obviously uh i take it from what you just said uh you're not big, you're not big into doctor's prescriptions or they have a place. or or, have or, or a place. medication they have a place, but it's not the place, uh, the research. It doesn't make any difference what I'm into. It's what the research, you need to go by the facts. The truth will set you free. All right. And the facts are, there are ways to deal with things in addition to beyond or instead of um, medication. Medications have their place, but they need to be used in, in the, embrace of knowledge that they are a short-term thing and they have a price they do not they do not answer what the psychology of a developing human being needs to have happen developing human beings need to have things that come at them that cause them anxiety and frustration and depression and they need to learn to deal with those things to make those feelings go away if I don't go to work, I will feel anxious. I should feel anxious. That anxiety is a message from God saying, get up, go to work. <laughs> you know, you, you need to go do that. All right. If I, uh, so you have to do that. Now, what to do? What to do? Well, the facts are that we have actually, in addition to delineating really what it is this disease all about and how does it work, we actually know how to fix it to a large extent. Um, but it is not the way it is not embraced by the culture at large. The research points to the ways to fix it. The research says you need to put continuity to ca of care together for 18 months to four years until stabilization occurs. That means you have some sort of case management until the stabilization occurs. All right. Not 30, 60, 90 days. It's a case managed process. Uh, APG programs provide these kinds of things I'm getting ready to talk about. That's why they're so well, you know, really, really well thought of. You need to include the family. You mentioned that. Family is powerful. It needs to be fun. All right. You need to show people how to be enthusiastic in that recovery. Uh, it needs to. Uh, it needs to have information. You need to address both the neurology and the stalled aberrant psychology. So you're going to have to have elements in place and it's all got to be hooked together. Some people are sick enough that they're going to need residential in the beginning days. Some people are not, but no matter whether you need it or not, it needs to be hooked. The family needs to be involved and it needs to be enthusiastic. Um, Research shows that a spiritual basis is obviously a big plus. 
if you do all of those things, there's some research out of Baylor that says you get up around an 85, 75 to 85% success rate. That's huge. If they'd have told me when I was diagnosed with liver cancer that I was, I had an 85% success rate, oh, I've been doing, you know, flips. Well, we really have that. But you've got to do all those things. In this culture, there's only a few places that do all those things. Alternative peer group programs are one of them. And it's real simple. You just call. You call one of them. You say, hey, I got a loved one who's sick. <clears throat> a lot of times the, the loved one has to call because the sick person, an outcome of the aberrant psychology is a refusal to recognize or proceed with recovery. But the family can be taught things to do to help that person move in and comply with enough that they recover anyway. I didn't want to get sober. Uh, facing all of that, I had no desire to get sober. But I was leveraged into being involved in activities with people that led me to answers. And as the answers came about, I started, yes, desiring to continue that recovery. John, I totally appreciate uh, you coming on and giving us all that information. Uh, I just want to do I, I just want to do a quick summary um, just for all the listeners out there um, because this was so much information, and I, I want to make sure that I do get the bullet points uh, correct. What you're saying is basically recovery is an 18 month to four-year process would be number one. Number two, it needs to include the family. Number three, uh, it needs to be fun and embraced enthusiastically. Uh, number four, uh, it needs information, um, needs to be uh, learned. Um, and also, if in, in fifth, uh, if it has a spiritual basis that in your experience you've you you've seen a 75 to 85 percent success rate do do I do I have those points uh, close to being you hit right on the ball I'm so pleased I can't believe usually I meander so much like, <laughs> what do you say <laughs> well awesome. I, I want to thank you so much uh men matter and we are really trying to make a difference in the lives of 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 the men of faith because that's typically what our audience is but also those people that they influence be it their family members their co-workers or their community and we really want to thank you for uh -huh. your contribution uh, one final question, though. Um, how would someone uh, get involved or support your group? Uh, a website or, or, There's or a how website. do you get a hold of you guys? There, there are several things. For, to support the effort at large, the Association of Alternative Peer Groups, what's reaching all over the world doing these things, is a website and is the Association of Alternative Peer Groups. The Lifeway program itself. It's easy enough. You can call me on the phone, 713-459-9427. Let me say that again, 713-459-9427. Or the uh, office number. That was my cell number. You can call me. Uh, but uh, And there is a website, Lifeway International. Uh, and there's another. And then you can also go to uh, uh, Facebook. There's Lifeway Rocks on Facebook. So there's a lot of different you know, different ways to get in touch. It's easy. 
on, on behalf of uh, producer Steve Titch, thanks so much to uh, Mr. John Cates for being here. My name is Bill Cox. This has been Men's Matter, the Director's Cut.